0: following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. I really want to thank the pastors and uh, even our elder A.B. Matthew for um, launching us into this whole sort of mini-series on the Lord's Prayer that we've been doing as a sort of a subset under this broader series on the Sermon on the Mount. And so today I'm going to close out that little mini-series with the last request that's found in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, But before I do, I want to share a few thoughts on the prayer as a whole since I didn't really get a chance to introduce it at the beginning of it. So I was in fifth grade when I first learned about these things called um, Tibetan prayer wheels. I don't know if you're familiar with it, uh, but basically, what they are there's these, these rods, these, these dowels, and around them are wrapped with like tissue thin paper. Over and over again, hundreds of times, uh, this paper on which is inscribed, um, sometimes uh, hundreds of thousands of prayers and mantras. And then after it's wrapped they seal it with a metal cylinder to protect them and the belief of these tibetan buddhists is that by turning these wheels you basically gain the same merit you know you sort of cleanse your karma as if you had uttered these prayers verbally with your own lips and this concept Blew my mind as a little kid. And I remember thinking when I was watching this on TV, um, why don't Christians have these wheels? (laughs) Because it was just mind blowing the thought that I can just spin this wheel. And in a matter of a few minutes of spinning that wheel, I will have gained the same credit of hours and hours and hours of prayer meetings. But it's funny because that kind of mindset of prayer is exactly what Jesus addresses before he teaches his disciples this Lord's Prayer. Because right before the Lord's Prayer, we find these words in verses 7 to 8 of Matthew 6. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. That specific word that Jesus used that's translated here as babbling has this connotation of mindless repetition. You you don't even really mean what you say. You may not even fully understand what you say. But in this pagan tradition, the whole key is just the quantity. You pray and you pray and you pray and you log in the hours to show your commitment to God and your desperation for the things that you're asking. In essence, that view of prayer is prayer as manipulation. It's using our prayer to try to get God to do what we want him to do for us. And there's sort of this implied message that God is resistant to that. And so through our prayers, we sort of grease those wheels and convince him to do the things we want him to do for us. And Jesus undercuts all of that and says, that is such a wrong perspective on prayer. Instead, Jesus says, when you approach God in prayer, approach him as a loving father who knows everything that you need before you even utter a single word. And so what's so remarkable about this Lord's Prayer is its brevity. It is so short. And says, you don't have to feel like you have to fill out the time to try to convince God how serious you are about the things that you're asking. God is already on your side. He already desires to bless you and help you in your time of need. We don't enter into prayer with the mindset of trying to convince God of the things that we want. Please, God, give that to me. Instead, Jesus frames prayer as an invitation to enter into an intimate relationship with a God who already is for us. Instead, through the Lord's prayer, Jesus is inviting us to align our requests with the things that matter most to God. And that raises the question, what does it mean to join God in what he wants to do in our life and in our world? Maybe I could explain it like this. When I was a medical student, I remember rotating through surgery. And as a medical student, they don't let you do anything significant. They're not going to let you cut you know, on a patient. It takes years of training before you can really actually pick up that scalpel and start making your first incision on a patient. So they have to figure out something for you to do. And so typically what they tell medical students to do is to hold things. And so we used to joke around among ourselves that we were just, you know, glorified retractor holders as medical students. You're just holding this this metal bar trying to keep the wound open so that the surgeon can work. But even that simple job proved to be a lot harder than you realize. Because as much as you're holding it, the thing is constantly changing. The situation is changing. The surgeon needs to get to different parts of the body, access different organs. And so you have to keep adjusting to what the surgeon is doing. And so as a medical student, you end up getting yelled at a lot. The the surgeon is always like, what are you doing? (laughs) Get your hand out of there. I can't see stop moving (laughs) and four hours into the surgery your fingers are falling asleep and you're just you you just want to die you want to get out of that so bad and you realize you're not helping the situation very much in fact you're hindering it because you just don't know what you're doing and i i think that's a helpful way actually to think about what it means to grow into a prayer life because when we're immature Our prayers just basically sound like laundry lists of everything we want God to do on our behalf. And by what does that mean to actually teach someone to pray? What Jesus is saying is, too much of your prayers are talking at God. We are praying at God. And what you really have to do is learn how to pray with God. Understanding what his heart is for you, what his desire is for this world, what his agenda is, the things that he is trying to accomplish in our world and then to align our prayers along those priorities that are in the heart of God. Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer to teach us how we can participate in what God wants to do in our life, in our world, through prayer so that we are praying with him and not at him. In this sense, the Lord's prayer serves as a model prayer that can teach us more generally how we ought to pray. But I also believe that Jesus intended this prayer to be recited by his disciples as well. Look at the account of the Lord's prayer in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1-2. to One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And then in verse two, he said to them, when you pray, say, and then he launches into the Lord's prayer. In other words, what I see here is not just how to pray, but actually what to pray. Now, we have to put it into its Jewish setting because this is something that we don't understand as modern Americans. In Jesus' day, the Jews had what was known as set prayers. These are recited prayers that were most commonly prayed in the morning, and then sometime around noon or the afternoon, and then a third prayer time was in the evening before you went to bed. And these were most often written prayers that Jews would read to God in the form of prayer. You see this throughout Scripture, actually. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Acts chapter 3, verse 1, in the days of Jesus. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at 3 in the afternoon. And so there were these set times when the Jews were expected to pray to God. And they would read these prayers from the rabbis written by them. And what Jesus says is, in essence, I think, in those set times of prayer, instead of reading from the rabbinical prayers here, pray this prayer that I am going to give to you. And even today, Jews and Muslims And even some Christian traditions have continued this practice of set prayers. And it's just something that we as modern evangelicals have sort of abandoned. We instead really push this idea that, oh, if you write a prayer, then that seems so wooden, that seems so stiff and formal. Like prayer should come from the heart. Everything should be spontaneous, right? I think there's a certain truth to that, that there are times to just pray and let everything flow from our heart. But here's the problem is when the the only prayers you ever pray just come from whatever is top of mind, whatever you want to tell God, I don't think those prayers have as much power to form us, to disciple us into growth in prayer. And that's what the set written prayers have the power to do, when we practice them day in and day out, they begin to reshape our understanding of prayer, of what are the very things that I'm asking of God when I come to him in prayer, not what are the top ten things that are bothering me right now and I'm asking God to fix. And so I want to make an argument that the Lord's Prayer is given to us as a model prayer for us to learn how to pray generally, but I actually want to commend to you to weave that into the rhythms of your own life, to set times when you actually recite the Lord's Prayer in the form of a prayer. And that's what we've been doing throughout this series, and so that's what I would like us to do right now. Let's let's read in an expression of prayer to God This Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Read with me, will you? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's pray. God, you are our Father, and you know everything we need before we even come to you in prayer. And in your loving, aching heart, how much you desire to minister to us. God, you are not only our Father, but you are our Father in heaven, transcendent, almighty. You hold the power of everything in your hand. So because of that truth, we can come to you asking the things that we need in our lives. God, we confess that so often we don't even know what we ought to ask. And so what we ask of you is that you would hallow your own name. That you would always act to maximize your glory in our life and in our world, in our family in our children, in our career. God, we confess that so often we do want to manipulate you to get the things that we want out of life. But God, what we sincerely want to pray today is that your kingdom would come, your will win out over our will, and that your desire be accomplished in us. God, we thank you that every day you give us what we need. Teach us how to be content with that. Teach us in your own generosity toward us how to be generous to those who are less fortunate than us. Father, we thank you that you forgive us our greatest sins, our debt, our trespass against you. We thank you that that well is endless of your forgiving heart toward us because of what Christ has done. And even if, as we receive that mercy, teach us to be givers of that same mercy to those who sin against us and are indebted to us. Even this morning, open our hearts to the understanding of what it means to pray That you would not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So we now turn to this final request in the Lord's Prayer Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. To ask God for daily bread, to pray that our Sins be forgiven. I think these are pretty straightforward requests, aren't they? But to ask God to not lead us into temptation, I think we have to acknowledge, is a confusing request. Why is this something that we have to ask God to do for us? In other words, shouldn't that be a given that God is not going to lead us into temptation? I mean, does it mean that if we don't ask this of God, that he is actually going to try to tempt us and make us fall? It's confusing, isn't it? What exactly are we asking of God when we say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? To understand what's going on here, we have to look more closely at the key word in this request, and it's that word temptation. In Greek, it is the word parasmos, okay? And that word parasmos can be translated as it is in this prayer as temptation. In other words, this is a situation that we are faced in life that pulls us to sin often could be prompted by evil forces wanting our faith to fail and to make us turn against God. The Bible tells us that the devil can be behind these temptations, like he was in the Garden of Eden when he tempted Adam and Eve to eat from the forbidden fruit. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter describes the devil as a lion that is hungry and on the hunt looking for its next meal. And the devil will often use temptation as a way to tear down the believer's faith. So that's one understanding of this Greek word parosmos. But there's another way we could actually translate this word. Because the second way we could translate it is as a trial or as a test. Throughout the Bible, what we're also told is that God himself uses tests and trials to reveal what is in our hearts. And again, that's found throughout the witness of Scripture. Job chapter 23, verse 8 to 10. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. So, as Job is going through this trial of his life, he recognized that he was being tested by God Himself. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 through 3, from the lips of God. Remember how the Lord, your God, led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God was telling the Israelites, I did all of this to you in the wilderness to test you. To test you. Now here's the thing. It's easy to understand why the devil would want to tempt us. But the more confusing thing is, why does God test us? What's the point of a test? Well, both of these passages that we actually looked at show us what the purpose of God's testing is, and it is to grow our faith. In other words, trials and tests give us an opportunity to demonstrate what really matters to us, and the choices we make in these moments will either weaken or strengthen our faith. In other words, they become the proving ground on which Either we fall or we stand, our faith is diminished or it is purified and it is strengthened. That's why God allows trials and tests to come into our life. They are vital tools of his to grow his people. Job says at the end of his test, I will be refined like gold. God told the Israelites that they were going through these trials in the wilderness to teach them how to totally depend on him for everything. And so here's the thing. In any given situation that you face, Satan could be using it as a temptation with the motivation to try to bring down your faith. But God can be using that very same event in your life as a test to strengthen your faith. Both could be occurring simultaneously in any given event. And we see that throughout Scripture, don't we? In the garden, God gave the test not to eat the forbidden fruit as a way to teach Adam and Eve how to put their trust in him and his word alone. And yet the devil used that to tempt them to rebel against God. It's interesting, the dialogue between Satan and God, even in the temptation and the trial of Job, right? Satan says, let me tempt him. And God says, you can test him. The very same thing happened to Jesus himself, who was tempted by the devil, who wanted to make him fall for 40 days in the wilderness. And yet it was the spirit himself that led the son into the wilderness to be tested by God so that he could overcome. One last thing that I want to say about this dynamic between temptation and testing is this. Although the motivations behind temptations and tests are totally different, one trying to build up your faith and one trying to tear it down, what they have in common is that they both will expose what is truly in your heart. That's the goal of both Satan and God. Let us see what really matters to you in your life through this trial. Because we can claim all kinds of beliefs and values hypothetically. But it's not until we face a genuine temptation or a test that we have the opportunity to really see what we believe and value. In other words, we need temptations and tests to expose who we really are and what matters most to us. Look at what James says in James chapter 1, verse 13 to 14. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. And enticed. What James is saying is that what the temptation has done is it has exposed the honest desires that truly drive your heart. So you cannot blame God for that. Tim Chaddock in his book, The Truth About Lies, says this. Temptation reveals our deepest convictions. Or to put it more Christianly, temptation reveals our deepest loves. How we choose to handle these tests reveals what matters most. And over time, it shapes who we will become. How we choose to handle these tests reveals what matters most. And over time, it sh- oh, actually, I already read that. Each time we choose truth in the face of a lie, we are, in a sense, flexing muscles in our spiritual lives that grow stronger with each challenge. The result is that we become more mature, our character grows, and by God's grace, we reflect the beauty of Jesus to those around us. Every moment of temptation can be an exercise in what matters most. These moments don't have to kill you. They can make you Stronger, And so as much as we don't want to face temptation, to face trial and testing, they are absolutely essential to the growth of our faith. We simply cannot mature without them. And so what I want to say is this, in a sense, every temptation is a test that will not only expose what we truly love, but also provide us an opportunity to flex that muscle of faith putting our trust in God's truth rather than Satan's lies. And what I want to say to you this morning is this. We have to take this issue of temptation seriously. Because what I would argue is if you read the story of the Bible from the Old Testament to New, what you will discover is that in almost every pivotal moment in history, a person was faced with a temptation and either overcame or fell to it. And that decision would end up shaping history. And I think in our day, we make much too light of temptation. You get these ridiculous shows like Temptation Island, right, where you make fun of temptation, And think of it like a joke and what the Bible says is temptation is serious business it causes the rise and the fall of people and nations history the course of history is charted by the choices made in the face of temptation and how you handle temptation in your life the Garden of Eden and the forbidden fruit Abraham called to sacrifice his son Isaac. The Israelites tested in the wilderness. Jesus tested and tempted in the wilderness by the devil. Much of the history of our world has hung on the balance of a person facing a temptation in their life. In April 2014 the Korean ferry boat, MV Sewa, sank in the Yellow Sea. When a crew member made the tragic error of turning the boat too sharply. And when he did that, the ship listed severely and began to take on water. And worried that people moving around on the boat could cause further problems, the captain ordered all the passengers to lock themselves in their cabins and to not leave no matter what. Even as it began to be reported to the crew that the lower cabins were beginning to compromise and water was flooding into them. Some defied the order of the captain and escaped their cabins and jumped into the surface of the water to be rescued later by fisher boats. But most of them, tragically, did not. And on that day, 304 passengers drowned in their cabins, 250 of which were high school students who were on a field trip. And there is this honored maritime tradition, timeless, that the captain goes down with the ship, but not this captain. As the passengers' cabins were flooding and people were dying, the captain of this ship evacuated himself as soon as the Korean Coast Guard arrived. And as soon as he was rescued, He was placed in handcuffs and arrested and put in jail and later faced trial for the horrendous way that he dealt with this situation. And here's the thing. I think all of us hope and pray to God that none of us have to face a moment like this in our life. Like this captain had to deal with these great life-defining tests don't come often in life. But what I would actually argue is they're almost unavoidable for every one of us. It might not be this epic as taking the death of hundreds of people. But I don't think we can escape life not having to face some decisions in our life that are going to fundamentally alter the course of our life. And that seems almost too weighted for a person to bear, doesn't it? How in the world is a person supposed to prepare for a life decision like that? I think one way that we can answer it is by looking at the life of King David, who of everyone in Israel was ready for that moment, for that test when Goliath challenged the people of God and said, who will take me on? And the question was raised, why of all people was this little boy, the only one willing to respond to that call and answer that test? And David himself gave the answer. He said, I am ready for this moment because this is what my life has been building up to every day when I was a shepherd boy tending my father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came, I put my trust in God. And I overcame every adversity, and I know who my God is, who walks with me. And so this giant is nothing. Bring him on, and I'll take him. I think what David was, in essence, teaching us is this. It is through the much smaller daily tests and temptations that we will be confronted with in life that will prepare us for the biggest tests and temptations that we will face in our lives. Tim Chaddock again writes this, defining moments never stand alone. Yes, they make the headlines, provide plenty of conversation pieces, and serve as inspiring stories or cautionary tales. But defining moments are always preceded by countless others. The big decisions we must make in public, in the spotlight, are influenced by the daily character-shaping choices made in private. Every day, whether you recognize it or not, you are faced with a litany of temptations and tests in your life. The problem is most of the time we don't even identify them as temptations or tests. And God is saying, how will you react? How will you respond? Because every one of those choices is forming the person that you are becoming. This was a tough weekend for me because I actually had to prep two sermons this week. I actually preached at our Savior Church right before the service for their mission weekend. And then I preached right now And here's the thing. The latest Call of Duty game dropped on Friday. And I had pre-ordered it and forgotten I had pre-ordered it. And this Amazon package came. And I opened it. And I was like, oh, shoot. And I was already exhausted from a busy week. And I still had a lot of work to be done on both sermons. And so I was faced with this dilemma. I mean, I can laugh about it now because I went through it. But on Friday, it was killing me. Here's the thing. In this past year, um, two of my friends who are pastors actually were kicked out of their church because they got caught plagiarizing sermons. Um, It's very tragic, you know. Um, But here's the other thing. When I found out that they got caught plagiarizing, and this wasn't a single incident, but it was repeated episodes of plagiarizing, um, I remember thinking this. I would never do that. I would never do that. It's beneath me. Um. <laughs> but this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I realized in that moment how easy it would be for me to pull a sermon online and just Change enough things to make it look like it was mine. And the truth is, you probably wouldn't know the difference. And so, even as I'm prepping this sermon on temptation, I'm realizing how subtle these things happen to us and how easily the justification is to cut corners, to use deception and lies to get out of a difficult situation to succumb to sexual temptation and view pornography, all of these justifications and easy ways that we can fall into this. And when we look at the Lord's Prayer, I think in essence, this is what Jesus is saying to us. Temptation and testing is everywhere around you. They are unavoidable, and by my design, I am not going to give you a temptation-free life. It's a vital part of forming the person you're becoming. But this is the invitation of Jesus that we can learn through the Lord's Prayer. Through the Lord's Prayer, we learn that what our stance in the face of temptation needs to be is, I am weak. I am weak. By my own willpower and determination, I am not strong enough to resist these temptations that come into my life. I need God's help. Denial doesn't get it done. Justification isn't the answer. It is, I am weak. And so God, when I face these trials, when I face these times of testing and temptation, be my strength. Help me that I will not sin against you in this testing. And the second simple thing, and I'll end with this, is simply this. I need God's help against spiritual attack. Jesus is also saying that we are in the midst of an epic spiritual battle that surrounds us. And in our modern way of thinking, we don't often think about demons and angels and spiritual beings like this. But the Bible tells us that these things are real. And that there are satanic forces that desire nothing more than to bring down your faith and to make you fall. And so what Jesus says is pray for protection against these evil ones that are doing everything in their power to make you fall. Because by God's power, his grace, his salvation at work in you, you can overcome these temptations in times of testing. By God's power alone, can we turn a temptation used by the devil to bring us down into a source of strength that builds us up and makes us to be who God wills us to be. Let's pray. What are the temptations and tests and trials that you are faced with in this moment of your life? And I think when we face those things, the natural instinct is to try to do everything we can to get out from under it, to reject it and say, God, if you love me, you would let this pass. And yet God in his love as our heavenly father Says, as painful as it is for me to watch you to go through that test. This is a necessary thing to grow you into the image of my son, Jesus Christ. We cannot win this battle against temptation by sheer willpower and strength. What we need is the humility to seek the help of God say God it feels like the easiest thing to do is just give in to this it feels like it would just relieve all the pressure and there's so many shortcuts to bypass what God wants from us but to live a life of integrity, a life that honors God, to live in the ethics of the kingdom requires that we fight this good fight against temptation The promise of God is that He will not allow any temptation to come that is so great that you cannot overcome it with His enablement, His strength, His power. Maybe for many of you, you feel like failures because you realize you do succumb more often than not to the temptations you face in life. And I want to say that there's forgiveness of God even in that failure. The invitation of God is to simply confess our sins. And he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And maybe that's a prayer that some of you want to pray right now. For some of you, you're trying to hold on and stay strong. And yet it feels so hard. You just want to give up. And to you, as saints of God, I want you to pray the prayer that God invites us to. Lead us, God, not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In the face of this trial, God, give me the strength to stand so that I will not be overcome. Would you just pray that prayer for just a minute or two, and then I'm going to invite you to come to the Lord's table in just a moment. But before we do so, let's just come to God in a couple minutes of silent prayer.